0: Welcome to Coast Range Radio, a production of the Coast Range Association. I'm your host, Michael Gaskill. I'm so excited to bring you this conversation today with Oregon Wild's Forest Climate Policy Coordinator, Lauren Anderson. Lauren joined Oregon Wild in 2020 after several years in Washington, D.C., working on energy, climate, and wildlife policy issues. Among other roles, Lauren helps coordinate the Climate Forest Campaign, a coalition of environmental organizations across the country, working to protect mature and old growth forests. The Coast Range Association is a proud partner in that campaign, and I hope you feel as inspired to take action as I was after this conversation. If you like what you hear, you can find all our shows and more at coastrange.org. We're also on all the podcast apps at Coast Range Radio And we'd be grateful if you'd subscribe to the show and leave a rating and review. And if you're listening on your community radio stations, thank you so much and make sure to support them. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future shows and guests, my email is michael at coastrange.org. Okay, Lauren Anderson, welcome to Coast Range Radio. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here to talk with you
0: today. You have engaged in a lot of projects that I'm super interested in and would love to talk with you about. And I hope we can cover a lot of ground today. But I think your biggest focus currently is on the climate forests campaign. I was thinking we could start there. Could you give us the elevator pitch for what the climate forest campaign is? And then we can dig a little more into some of the details and various aspects of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. Um, So when we think about forest and climate issues, they span such a wide range of topics. Um, You know, logging impacts clean water. It's related to the threat of wildfire. Um, And then we have different ownership types. We have private lands, which are a really big challenge in Oregon in terms of logging practices and state forest lands, which are also not managed as well. And then we also have federal lands, and that is really the focus of the Climate Forest Campaign. So this campaign is very narrowly focused on ending mature and old growth logging on federal lands. So that's Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management lands. I'm very focused on the Pacific Northwest. So I work with um, organizations across Oregon, Washington, California um, to really help coordinate and drive the campaign efforts regionally, but those efforts are definitely connected to a national campaign.
0: Yeah, well, that might be a good place to talk about where the campaign started or the connection to President Biden's executive order around conserving forests. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as many folks know, efforts to protect mature and old growth forests on federal land stretch back decades. So this is really the most recent iteration of a campaign that goes back a very long ways um, with many people working working on it over the years. We all came together under one banner, the Climate Forest Campaign, to officially launch this campaign. Um, Little did we know that two months later, after launching the campaign, come Earth Day, um, President Biden issued an executive order protecting mature and old growth forests or calling for their protection doesn't officially protect them from uh, out the gate but he's calling for their protections which is a pretty big deal and this was a huge deal for a couple reasons one because it talks about mature forests as well as old growth which is a first and it talks about pure land management lands in addition to national um, forest service lands so those are both really big step for big steps forward and we're pretty excited about it.
0: <laughs> right. Absolutely. Um, the Climate Forest campaign you all recently successfully coordinated, you know, among dozens of groups to get over a hundred and twenty thousand comments submitted to the USDA during the Forest Service's public comment period on defining mature and old growth forests in service of enacting President Biden's executive order.
1: So thank you. It was definitely a group effort. Um, Organizations across the country really came together to drive that comment count um, and get in that guidance to the Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management. Following the executive order when it came out on Earth Day, um, it was followed, uh, I believe, in June by a secretarial memo that came out from Secretary Vilsack with the USDA. I would say that memo did not have a lot of very helpful detail in determining where um, they were going in terms of next steps of implementing the executive order, but there was one piece in there that was glaringly obvious about an opinion that they held on these issues and that opinion was that logging was no longer a threat to mature and old growth forests that these forests are adequately protected (laughs) there are no ongoing threats logging is not a thing we have to worry about it's all about wildfire and climate change and we don't need to worry about it Um, and that is obviously not true we have numerous projects here in Oregon alone where there is still mature and old growth logging happening including flat country Um, and several Bureau of Land Management projects as well and projects in Eastern Oregon. And so we were really focused on a couple of things. One, highlighting logging is in fact a threat to mature and old growth and that the Forest Service can't ignore that. And two, that whatever policy is developed coming out of this effort needs to be focused on a durable, lasting protection for these trees.
0: Yeah. You know, just so I'm making sure that I'm understanding it you know, President Biden came out and said, we are going to protect mature and old growth forests as part of our conservation goals, but that can mean a lot of different things. So then it's up to the Secretary of the Interior and then the USDA and Forest Service to decide, okay, what counts here? How are we going to inventory it? Blah, 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 blah. And that's where you all came in to make sure that we get the strongest possible implementation and definition of these policies
1: absolutely so what we're pretty sure the forest service would prefer to focus on as part of this exercise is wildfire and the only way to protect mature and old growth forests from the threat of wildfire is to thin and log them extensively so that you know there are no more forests to burn which is a you know i have some issues with that strategy for a variety of reasons but um the reality is it's not the dominant threat to these forests. Mature and old growth forests are some of the most resistant to wildfires. They had thicker bark, higher tree canopies, and are better able to withstand the impacts of climate change. And so we really need to make sure that whatever comes out of this um, process around the executive order really does address the threat of logging and ensures that whatever um, the Forest Service wants to focus on in terms of restoring ecological function in certain areas, that it's still, no matter what, removes this option of logging mature and old growth trees. So that is not something the agencies are on board with, and it's something that we really need to make sure um, remains a priority. We need to make sure that what we have left is protected and that we protect enough mature forests that we're actually able to ensure at the end of the day that old growth forests, are they begin to grow back across the country. And I will say one last point that we really want to focus on when people think of climate solutions, they think of, you know, wind turbines and solar panels and Teslas and, you know, all of all these different things pop into your mind when you think like fighting climate change. And we want old growth trees to be in people's minds as well so that they begin to value them for climate change the same way those other solutions are valued.
0: Absolutely. It's just a shocking fact that in Oregon, our number one source of carbon emissions is the logging industry. and um it's just absolutely untrue that these short rotation timber plantations are net carbon sinks. The real net carbon sinks, like you say, are these mature and old growth forests,
1: yeah, it's pretty incredible where we live. i mean our our temperate rainforests have more carbon per acre in this region than the Amazon rainforest. and the fact that you know, we have this, this climate solution at our fingertips that is like, doesn't cost us any money to build. All we have to do is just let these trees grow and ensure that they're still standing for future generations. And it's, it really is simple and cost effective. And in my mind is really just kind of the low hanging fruit of things that we could do. And we don't have any technologies yet that can really pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere at scale. And we have a solution that's here now and does not cost millions of dollars, so we should probably use it.
0: <laughs> exactly. I wonder if you could talk at all about the forests that you all are highlighting as forests that are currently being threatened with logging and should not be logged, and maybe especially the ones here in Oregon and how folks can like get involved with protecting those specific forests.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So those 10 projects are definitely, first off, not a comprehensive list of all of the mature and old growth forests across the entire country. Those examples were pulled because of the variety they offered. Some of them, like the Vermont project, isn't necessarily logging old growth forests, but it is targeting a very big area of mature forests. So East Coast has like practically no old growth left. Um, So the fact that they're still targeting and logging mature forests in like North Carolina and Vermont is just terrible because that pretty much eliminates any chance we have of getting old growth back on the East Coast. Um, And then it also that report highlights a wide array of the sorts of project types that people do like flat country in Oregon is just a straight up old school old growth logging project where their rationale for it is getting um, timber volume. That's that's why they're after flat country um, is because they can get a ton of timber volume cheaply.
0: And just to jump in, sorry, when you say the flat country timber sale, for folks that maybe have no idea, that's, uh, you know, like, where is that? Um,
1: pretty much east of, of Eugene in, in Willamette National Forest. And it's a beautiful area, um, very pristine, huge old trees. The other types of projects that we're highlighting, like in Montana, Some of the projects that they're doing are for uh, wildfire resilience. So they're saying, you know, we need to go in and log this old growth forest in order to reduce wildfire risk. And so it just kind of gives sort of the overview of all of the different arguments the Forest Service uses for continuing to log mature and old growth forests. And so there's a wide variety out there, wide geographic distribution. And that's what we tried to highlight specifically with the report.
0: Where can people, you know, see the report for themselves? Where can people get more information about the these forests we're highlighting and just the Climate Forest campaign in general?
1: One of the best places to get these resources is through the Climate Forest website. The website has an overview of the campaign, um, summary of news coverage, it has the Worth More Standing report on there, along with a bunch of blogs that members of the campaign have written. Um, there's also a contact form on the website.
0: Yeah. And so that website though is climate-forests.org. And there's that that little hyphen in there, climate-forests.org.
1: Yep. And you can also just Google climate forests and it should be the first thing that shows up for you as well.
0: Yeah. And again, I just think that the threatened forests piece, which if you go to climateforest.org, it's one of the headline tabs at the top of the page. And I think you all did a really good job of picking, like you say, a broad range of forests over a broad range of the country that showcase important and worthy conservation efforts everywhere. So definitely recommend that folks check that out. So what are the next steps for this campaign?
1: What we're hoping for coming out of this comment period is a summary and key takeaways that the Forest Service got. And obviously the message is that we want them to take away is that they need to develop meaningful new policy. It's not enough to just update some forest plans or continue with business as usual. We need something that's actually pretty transformative in terms of a policy solution. And then we also need to ensure that logging is addressed as a threat. It's not all about wildfire. There are um, commercial logging projects that are continuing to take big old trees from the landscape and we need to put an end to that. The next big milestone looking forward is COP27. So that's the next big international climate change conference which will be happening in Egypt this year. And our hope is that um, we get uh, some more updated, big announcements around um, how the U.S. is planning to use forests as a climate solution going forward. That was one of the big announcements that Biden made at last year's International Climate Conference. And obviously a lot has happened this year. So we're hoping for some more updates this November. And our time and energy will be focused on basically doing everything that we can to ensure that we get some sort of meaningful announcement out of COP27.
0: Right. You know, for better and for worse, the U.S. is a world leader. And it's really important that we go into these, you know, international conferences, having done the work at home, you know, when we, especially when we go ask other countries like Brazil or, you know, countries without our economic power um, to be conserving their own forests and their own resources, that we're walking the walk as well. Correct.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I feel and I I think that the U.S. often goes into those sorts of international meetings acting as if all of our, our issues are already solved here in the U.S. When the reality is that, you know, old growth is still at risk in the United States and we have such a deficit that it's not only about protecting the old growth we have, but also about recovering it. And it rings a little hollow when the um, United States basically points the finger at other countries when we're not walking the walk ourselves.
0: I'd love to pivot now. And since we're talking about, you know, federal policy and the U.S. government walking the walk internationally, I'd love to get your take on the recent historic climate bill that Democrats just passed and more broadly about how you feel about some of the tensions between electoral and non-electoral organizing. I was really frustrated to see some of our allies kind of trashing and dismissing the bill. And for anybody that doesn't know, it's the, I'm talking about the inflation reduction act, but what it really is above all else is the, you know, biggest climate investment in world history. And I think really we should be taking the win here. You know, people have organized for years and years and, and I really think of this as a a win, despite, you know, obviously some bad things in there.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the sort of issues and challenges that you raise around climate policy are like a very big can of worms um, in terms of just like the complexities and like it's deeply tied to people's emotions and values around these these topics. And I am extremely sympathetic to the people that were frustrated with the Inflation Reduction Act, um, you know, climate change is like the greatest challenge of our time. And we want our elected leaders to rise to the occasion and and meet the challenge sort of on the scale that it needs to be met on. And, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that the IRA does not do that. What it is, is the biggest climate bill, the only really major climate bill the United States has ever passed. Um, and potentially one of the biggest pieces of Climate policy that's ever um, been done in the world. Um, It it is a transformative piece of policy. When you talk about climate policy, there's kind of two camps of people. There are the people that want to put a price on carbon, like a carbon tax or a cap and trade program, and that restricts emissions and is kind of a top-down approach to ensuring that polluting technologies cost more money and therefore they're not desirable in the future. And then the other side of things is very much a growth-focused path. So, so folks that are focused on incentivizing clean energy, building out the good, um, not necessarily you know, punishing polluters. And the Inflation Reduction Act is definitely the latter. So this strategy is focused on growth jobs. It's focused on building out electric vehicle infrastructure and solar and wind and zero emissions technologies. It is, it is very much um, a different way of looking at things than a lot of traditional climate policy has been. So it's also going to take a long time, which is obviously frustrating when you're like, I want every fossil fuel terminal shut down. We need to stop building natural gas plants. Like, why are we still mining coal? This is ridiculous. This is basically shifting the U.S. economy to be more focused on clean energy in the future. And so that's kind of an overview of like the strategy behind this bill and why it matters and how it's going to be transformative.
0: I agree with your with your assessment. You know, obviously, it's not everything it it should be if we could wave a magic wand and get the policy that's needed. And this doesn't contradict your point at all. But these things don't happen in a vacuum. You know, they happen in the realm of what is politically possible in a specific moment. And I think that is where my frustration comes in. Is is we do have a very closely divided political environment. And whatever you out there think, I encourage you to vote. But I think it's you know it's worth noting that we have razor thin margins in both houses of Congress. And we have a, you know, a Democratic Party that has become more and more unified around the need for big climate action and a Republican Party that, um, I mean, <laughs> I don't know what to say.
1: <laughs> not, not much in the way of a positive spin you can put on the Republican Party and climate policy. So right. uh, that's, that's understandable.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that, I guess that's where my where my starting point is, that the world of what is possible changes depending on who's in power. And and so I think that's also an important framing to look at. it. But, you know, how do you think about that tension between, you know, pushing for wins in the politically possible of the moment versus pushing for what is right and what is necessary, even if it isn't politically possible or popular?
1: Yeah, that that is a great question. Um, and I I will answer it real quick though, I want to acknowledge uh, in terms of um, the IRA specifically, I I think it's also really good to acknowledge there are all these other associated values that are um, woven in very deeply and intrinsically with climate policy, including environmental justice, um, access to like affordable housing, all of these other pieces that that come in and, and including conservation That is also a very deep part of that. And a lot of that was lost from the bill as it made it over the finish line. I think when you hear about people's frustrations about the bill, it was because all of those like wildlife conservation um, values and investments were lost. And a lot of the, you know, there are aspects of environmental justice that were woven into the final bill, but not as much as there was originally. And so um, there are a lot of legitimate frustrations associated with the bill, especially on forestry issues. I will say, and fuels reduction money. Yeah, you know it. It is it is good to acknowledge that that in addition to being one of the biggest and best climate bills that we have ever seen, it also um, did a little bit damage to us. Um, so it it's good to be open about that.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: But pivoting back to sort of your question, um, I I think. So my formative years in getting into climate policy and advocacy, I I went to Oregon State University for graduate school, got a master's of public policy from their program, and was determined to never leave Oregon again. Um, But uh, so were a lot of other people who want to work on environmental issues. And so um, I eventually gave up and moved to D.C., For what I thought was going to be the start of um the next Clinton administration. Um, but if that was not the case, um, I spent the next four years in BC working for the National Wildlife Federation during the Trump years. And so
0: Wow, you were in the trenches.
1: (laughs) My formative years were uh and my um rosy outlook on what is possible was was definitely kind of a different take, I think, than what a lot of people who get into this work um, start out with. So because of sort of my start in this path, I'm definitely of the take where whatever we can get done, whatever progress we can make needs to be made. And then once you make that progress, then you go on to the next thing instead of sacrificing wins um, in the quest for like the perfect solution. So I'm, I'm pretty firmly rooted in that outlook on life. That being said, though, I do think there are times where it's good to just, you know, stake your flag and fight for what is right and what you believe in. So and I think that groups that do that and people that do that ultimately push the conversation further than it would have gone otherwise. So I think there's a lot of value in both views on life, um, honestly.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I try to embody both of those viewpoints to, you know, different degrees at different times, but that can be a really hard tension to hold, um, and balance. Um, but actually you just kind of touched on a piece of this conversation that I wanted to get to. So maybe this is a great time. Uh, I want to hear more about your origin story. Um, (laughs) yeah. Like how did you come to this work? How did you come to care about it in the first place?
1: Um, so I grew up in California and I grew up sort of camping and backpacking. Um, my dad was a scientist. And so I had always you know, been fully committed to being a marine biologist when I grew up. Um, and then I realized I was scared of the ocean, so gave up on that. I ended up at Oregon State University working in climate policy during graduate school and um, discovered a lot of interest for it actually. And so, um, like I said earlier, I was determined to stay in Oregon forever and never leave. And I, uh, you know, everyone who wants to work on environmental issues wants to live in a beautiful state and, um, you know, you go to job fairs and there's like hundreds of people and, uh, competition's pretty steep. And all I had on my resume was, um, wildlife biology stuff. So, uh. I intended it to be a six month trip to DC to get some more experience and then turn around and come back, and turned into four years. And so I was lucky enough to get this job offer with Oregon Wild. And the rest is history. um, It's been the best choice I think I I could have made. I've been so happy, and the work has been so interesting. And the people at Oregon Wild, as I'm sure you know, are um, pretty fantastic to work with.
0: Sounds like you have had the opportunity to work kind of in a lot of different contexts. And I think that's really just beneficial for for somebody to have that kind of diverse experience. I find uh, people who are able to work in D.C., I find that really fascinating because that seems like almost like an alien world to me.
1: I mean, yeah, it was a weird time for sure um, to be in D.C. because I we were you know we would have our uh, signs tucked under our desks in the office and then everyone would get the notification after work that there was another rally in front of the white house and <laughs> there was another rally in front of congress and we'd all grab whatever sign fit the issue best and run out the door to go to the rally after work and you know we had our polar bear costumes on like stashed under the desk and just like that was like <laughs> every week there was something new to run out there and protest and so in some ways, it was nice being in kind of the epicenter of it all because you were all all in it together and it didn't feel like you were far away and helpless or anything like that. It felt like you were deeply connected and involved in the fight against it all. So that was good, um, but yeah, it it definitely can lead to a little bit of burnout there at the end for sure.
0: Well, so finally, is there anything I've missed today or anything that you want to add to the conversation?
1: You know, our our conversation today was very focused on uh, federal lands and the climate forest campaign, which is the vast amount of my time, Um, but there are a bunch of other issues related to private lands and state lands in Oregon. So I absolutely encourage people to get plugged into those issues, attend Board of Forestry meetings. Um, They're all public access. Um, And if folks want to get engaged, there are a great number of ways to do so. My email, um, if you want to reach out and get involved, is, is la at OregonWild.org. Um, so please feel free to reach out. You can also um, get in touch with our campaign organizer, Victoria. Um, her email is b w at OregonWild.org. Um, just Google Climate forest, or the URL is climate-forests. And it is a great way to learn more about the campaign and you can reach out directly to us through that website as well. So um, I really hope folks get involved going forward.
0: Well, Lauren Anderson, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been a, a real pleasure and thank you so much for all the hard work that you do.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Michael.
0: And that's our show. One last time, that website is climate dash forests.org. you can also find all of our shows and more at coastrange.org and like i said at the top of the show we're also on all the podcast apps please remember to subscribe and leave us a review any feedback or suggestions my email is michael at coastrange.org thank you so much for listening talk to you soon